Thank you, Cece. Hey, I cannot... <laughs> I say this a lot, but I have zero, literally zero music ability. And I'm, people that have it usually say, oh, no, you could just train. We could teach you. Believe me, I have zero. <laughs> I have tried many instruments. I have tried to sing. It is disgusting. <laughs> so why do I say that? It's it, because... I'm always reminded how deeply we need each other. And when I see the gifts being shared here, I'm so thankful. So thank you. Thank you. Incredible voices. Michelle, we're so excited to have you here. Three books at once. Yes. Why not? Why not? Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Go out with a bang, right? Yeah. That's yeah. the way to start. So um, we are going to, it's perfect because as a member here not a, and also a, a national leader of our denomination, uh, the cool thing is, it all connects very deeply, not only with what our denomination cares about, but what with Newcom was founded on and, and so tries to practice, it is, right? very much. So, um, Michelle has identified a couple of power verses for us, so I'm going to share those. These are really amazing ones. So, our first one would be Colossians 1, 15 through 19, and there it is. Listen to the proclamations here. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, were thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, whether any of those, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It's a theme here. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. There's only one true supremacy, right? It's Christ. Anything else attached with that word is not of Christ. For God has pleased, was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. That's right. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And then 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20. Uh, I really love this set of verses as well. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. All of this is from God, who did what? Who reconciled us to himself through Christ and did what? Gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Here ends the, the scripture reading. So Michelle... All right. Now, in your book, you talk about an awakening between the connections of discipleship and race, which is not something we normally hear. Um, I was actually just in Houston this week, and my son and daughter-in-law are co-pastors of a covenant church there, and they were saying how they got to talk to you about this, and they were so excited about it. So I said, oh, well, guess what? We're talking about Sunday. <laughs> yeah. So can you tell us a little bit more about this connection between discipleship and race? Yes. Before I do, I just want to say thank you for the opportunity to address you today, my family, my Newcom family. 
Also, I am very grateful for Michael spending this time with me on stage today. You know, one reason I love our church is we just have a bunch of humble rock stars here. You didn't know this. Michael Emerson is like Christian famous. Okay? You just need to understand this. We're here, we're here to talk about you. <laughs> so I'm feeling, you know. Anyway, um, no, seriously, Michael, um, among many others, has had a, a massive influence on my life, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in terms of making connections between discipleship, which is my life call, and race. So I have been a discipleship leader for many years now. I'm going on eight years leading uh, discipleship nationally for the Covenant Church. And for much of my life and much of this time, I did not make clear connections between race and discipleship. I kind of put that in another department. You know, that's the justice department. Race and racism, these are critical topics. They have to do with justice. In my head, I'm thinking more than discipleship. So I major on things like evangelism and Bible study and all of those traditional things, worship, right? Um, but I didn't make connections with race and discipleship. But then 2020 happened. And 2020 shook things up for everybody. Is that right? <laughs> In one way or another way, 2020 shook things up. So what that looked like for me, first of all, I do a lot of travel with my job. So all the travel stopped. And I had to just sit still and think about discipleship in this moment. And what was going on in the world was the killing of George Floyd and too many others and racial upheaval. And I had to ask the question, what does what I'm doing, discipleship, have to do with all this? <laughs> what is the connection, right? And also, I started asking some nagging questions, which I know that Michael has also been very nagged by over time. One of them being, so why do we seem to struggle so much with racial inequality and racial tension in contexts where there are supposedly a lot of Christians, a lot of Christian disciples? It doesn't make sense, right? Like what? How does that work? <laughs> and we can go back historically and look at that, right? The, um, the rooting, the terrible rooting of, of slavery and Jim Crow and whatnot in a deeply Christian context. So what is that about? And um, as I have been exploring these nagging questions, I've come to see, and this I'm starting personal, I have personally come to see that there's been a hole in the way we've been doing our discipleship. So racism is about justice, absolutely. But I believe even more fundamentally it's about discipleship. It's about discipleship. And so the problem is our whole approach to discipleship hasn't been whole. Okay, so tell us more about that, <laughs> please. Yes, so glad you asked. So, um, so in our scripture today from Colossians, it has this really mysterious part and it says this, that God is reconciling all things to himself in Jesus. This is a beautiful and incredibly mysterious scripture. And what does it mean? So I brought an illustration today for you to talk a little bit about that. So God created this 
gorgeous, multi-dimensional world for us in which we engage in relationships on multiple levels, okay? We engage in individual relationship with the Lord. We engage in interpersonal relationships with one another, friends, family, community, uh, local church. Beyond that, we also engage in systems and structures. We have relationships with communities, organizations, institutions, even nations. And then, a lot of times in the West we forget this, but we also have cosmic relationships. There are principalities and powers uh, uh, in this world that we also engage with. And God created all of this, and the world was originally whole at every single one of these levels, okay? But then, sin entered the world, right? And what sin does is it breaks things. It breaks them. And so in the fall, sin broke everything at every level. And the fact is that we often forget some of the levels at which sin has broken things, right? And that that explains the whole in our gospel. So, um, you know, obviously, you know, as, as evangelicals, which I do identify, we tend to prioritize, for good reason, our relationship with God individually and how that has been broken and needs to be restored, and it absolutely does. But other relationships are also broken, our interpersonal relationships. In addition to our systems and structures, these things also have been broken by sin at different levels. Um, And that gets at something that I think the world has been awakening to, systemic brokenness or in the case of racism, systemic racism. Now, um, I want to pause here for a second and really highlight, this is something that I would say uh, I was first dramatically awakened to because of the work of Michael. I went, it was really early on in my time serving this, in this role, and I went to a presentation that you did um, in, on systemic racism. And I was like, well, what's systemic racism? Okay, remember this. I remember this because you weren't happy with me, I remember. I wasn't happy with you? You came to my office and like, what is all this stuff Actually, no. So, okay. We might have different, different, different memories here. This is what I remember. I remember, not that I wasn't happy, but that I was just confused. I was like, oh my gosh, like, what have I been missing, right? Like, what are, you, what are you talking about? What is going on that I have been blind to? Um, but that was the Lord working. And yes, we, we did some follow-up. But um, Michael did a presentation. <laughs> Michael's presentation, he had this slide that was just one of those mic drop slides, okay? And basically, he had compiled all of the research in which we can see evidence for racial disparity today. And the slide had how many? Do you remember, like 50 plus? About 50 different areas in modern life where we can still observe persistent racial inequity. And he put this slide up there, and it's like wealth and education and criminal justice and healthcare and career opportunities, just on and on and on. And it was so shocking because... I mean, we live in a colorblind society, don't we? Like, we, we did the civil rights movement thing. I, I don't personally know that many mean people who are racist to me. So what is this, <laughs> right? 
so you messed me up. Um, uh, yeah, and I, I have more to say. I have much more to say. But finally, let me just mention that on a cosmic level, friends, what we have missed in our, in our discipleship, racism and other forms of injustice are powers and principalities. They are forms of evil, friends, um, that our enemy uses to divide us and to destroy us. And so when it comes to racism as well, we have to understand there's a spiritual dimension to this thing, which Michael and I have also talked about. And so as disciples, we have access, friends. We have access, of course, to worldly tools, but we also have access to the tools that God provides, spiritual tools, okay, to engage these powers and principalities that are destroying our world. And so, to sum it up, our discipleship needs an upgrade, Michael. An upgrade, I like it. <laughs> 2.0? Yes. <laughs> okay, so a lot of us don't know your background. So in the book, you talk uh, some about growing up, African-American woman growing up in primarily white neighborhoods, right? So can you talk about that and how that influenced you? Yes. So one of the reasons that I felt called to write this book was that I do have a bit of a unique perspective. I think. So I am a part of the post-civil rights generation, right? Um, but I think, you know, my experiences being black but also growing up in predominantly white situations has helped me to understand the more subtle ways, subtle ways, that racism can play itself out. So I grew up in a middle-class suburb of New York, um, and my parents were actually born in the South Bronx in a very under-resourced situation, but they had access later on to like a, a home purchase program for low-income people. So through that, we moved out to Long Island and I grew up in a predominantly white community that was really well-resourced. And it was a great community. I would say it was a kind, colorblind community as much as you could have that. Um, I did well. I remember my hero, of all time was Claire Huxtable. You guys know Claire Huxtable? Oh, I would watch her every Thursday, just my eyes aglow. I'm like, I'm gonna be just like her when I grow up. I'm gonna live in the city. I'm gonna have a bunch of kids. I'm gonna have a professional husband. I'm gonna have perfect hair. I'm gonna do it all. I'm gonna be a professional. She was, that, that was it, there was the script. Long as I try hard, I can be Claire Huxtable. So, did well, graduated as the first black valedictorian of my high school, went to college, did all the things. Worked at a fancy investment bank for a while, Goldman Sachs, if you've heard of that place. And so, friends, um, it was fine. I, I mean, I can honestly say I didn't experience that much, like, head-on, in-your-face racism. Okay. <laughs> but over time, I have come to understand, given... Um, the, the encouragement and prophetic rebuke, frankly, of good friends and colleagues who have helped me to understand that my experience has been exceptional, okay? Meaning, my experience has been like an exception to the rule. There are plenty of people of color who break through, you know, and, and make it, but there are still, in every category, 50 categories, massive racial disparity as a whole. So, um, 
Some can be an exception to the rule, but there is still a rule, <laughs> and it firmly persists. So um, what do we do about that? You know, I, I think, again, in my case, it was just recognizing today uh, racism looks different. It just looks different. It works itself out differently. And as a black person, I could either say, hey, what's wrong with the rest of you? Why don't you work hard like me? Which has happened. <laughs> or I could understand big picture. There's still a rule. You might be an exception, so what can you do with what God has given you and the platform he's given you and the education he's given you and everything he's given you? <laughs> you can make a difference with that. You can make a difference with that. Okay, so we still want to know. How is discipleship <laughs> and race related? How, okay, so how is race and discipleship related? So you got to buy the book to actually understand that. But <laughs> um, I will say I see two primary connections, and they have to do with embracing diversity and dismantling racism, okay? Diversity dismantle racism. These two things. If you have one without the other, it'll be kind of lopsided. So let me talk about that. So first, disciples are called to embrace diversity. I swear it, this is not a PC thing. It is not a recent idea. Uh, you can see it all throughout the scriptures. God created this incredibly diverse, beautiful world. From Abraham, he said, I'm going to use you to bless the nations. Fast forward to Jesus. He wasn't colorblind. He said, I want you to go and make disciples of all the nations, all the different kinds of people. Then you see Acts, intentional movement from people to people to people, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And then in Revelation, people from every tribe, tongue, nation, right? It is part of God. The more diversity we have, the more of God's glory we receive because he <laughs> created it and he loves it. And it's his intention, you know, that it would be a gift to us. By the way, that word nation that I just repeated in every one of those places is the word ethne in Greek. Ethne. What does that sound like? A better translation would actually be all the ethnic peoples of the world. Okay? So that has always been God's dream. But sin. <laughs> the world is broken. The world is fallen. And so instead of being a source of delight and richness to us, diversity has become a source of division of challenge, of polarization, of oppression, right? That's what it's become. And so, along with embracing diversity, we need to understand that usually in a broken world, wherever there's diversity, there will also be forms of inequity, okay? And you can see this all over the world in many different contexts. And so, we also need to be able to see where there's difference, where there's inequity as well, and then work to pursue the dream of God, which I would call, as Martin Luther King called, beloved community, a diverse community where there is equality and we all love each other with the love of God. So those are the two pieces that I really see as connecting race and discipleship. Yeah, so your title is Color Courageous, contrasting with colorblindness. So what's the difference? Yes, okay, all right. So yes, my, my personal journey has essentially been about moving from a colorblind approach to life and discipleship to a color courageous one. And so, what is that about? The post-civil rights generation, of which I am part, has also been referred to as the colorblind generation. You know, we grew up, and basically the idea was, look, just don't pay attention to color. 
And then, you know, that's how we can avoid all these terrible things like racism. Um, and people love to quote Martin Luther King talking about we don't want to judge people on the content, I mean the color of their skin, but the content of their character, right? Probably his most famous quote, although he said a lot of other things. We've got to put it in context. But of course, you know, we don't want to be judged on you know, the basis of the color of our skin. And we generally want to see how all people are equal and the ways in which they are equal. But here's the thing. Um, even in a world which has embraced colorblindness, we still have these persistent inequities. We still have them, okay? Why is that? Well, there is brilliant, I did so much research for this book, my friends. You see the footnotes? They go on and on and on. But there has been so much brilliant research on the impact of colorblindness. Um, and basically, in many different contexts, they'll look at, okay, here's someone who basically uh, is colorblind, or someone who pays attention to the differences and engages a little bit differently because of that. What they have seen, um, and I'll, I'll recommend one resource called The Psychology of Racial Colorblindness by Philip Mazzocco. He summarizes the years of research, and his conclusion is that colorblindness ironically leads to exactly the opposite of what we want. A colorblind approach to almost anything tends to result in racial inequity. Isn't that crazy? And mostly it's unconscious. It's not intentional. But yet it still happens. And I think part of it is that if you can't see race, then you can't see racism. It's very simple. But essentially, if you, if you refuse to countenance racial categories, then you will more easily miss when there might be racial inequalities going on or even more likely to suppress important conversations that need to happen, or to suppress aspects of people's experience, okay? So, uh, this is why colorblindness just isn't working anymore. <laughs> We're all still on a journey of figuring out a better way. Um, we don't wanna replace one form of injustice with another form of injustice. Let me be clear, okay? Um, and I say more about that too in the writing. But we know colorblindness doesn't work, so I talk about becoming color courageous, which is courageously seeing color, choosing to see color for the sake of pursuing beloved community. I think that's what we need, and that's what God would like. All right, so there's a term that's now used in a lot of our society for Christians when they want to be labeled as not good Christians, and it's, the word is woke. You have a, you're woke. <laughs> yeah. Okay, um, as, as if we're supposed to stay asleep, right? So, <laughs> for you, you, you actually used that kind of terminology, that you became awakened to yeah. this reality. How has that affected your ministry, your work as a disciple, as a leader in the denomination? Amen. So many ways. I'll name two. One, I actually did have... Um, a significant amount of racial brokenness in my own life that I actually hadn't even recognized. Some of it just took the form of internalized racism, okay? So essentially, you know, I grew up believing, look, I'm a black woman, that means I'm at the bottom of society. I'm at the very bottom, and I have to work twice as hard, three times as hard, to get the same thing as other people. So that was drilled into me throughout my whole life. 
Um, but, <laughs> and in my case, that really led to a, an incredibly unhealthy perfectionism. It's like, I cannot, it has to be right, it has to be perfect. I can't graduate two, I have to graduate one. You know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Everything has to be perfect. My standards for myself were like that and for other people. So it was horrible for my relationships. And over time, God helped me to see the connection between race and my perfectionism, my harmful, destructive perfectionism, that a lot of it came from internalized forms of racism and even self-hatred. So in the writing of this, that is really when I discovered a lot of that, and I had to go through a healing process. I had to go through a healing process and to disconnect the poisonous impact of racism. By the way, I think that there's a poisonous impact of racism on all of us, every race, every person. It just may take a little while to understand what it looks like, but I had to work through some healing, and now I truly feel like I am in a more healthy place as a result, and, and my life is more disentangled from racism. The other thing is, I would say, I have seen how by pursuing anti-racism, racial righteousness and reconciliation, if you do it with Jesus, it can be a way of getting closer to Jesus. This is very exciting, friends. And so, yeah, so that's why I felt led to write about how that works, how that happens. But this is a work to do with Jesus. Yeah, so normally we write one book at a time. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of been my model. Uh, so why did you decide to do three, which are actually geared towards different ages, right? Yes, yes. Um, so I will say when I first started, I just had adults in mind. And, um, but as I continued along the way, you know, in my work for the ECC, Evangelical Covenant Church, I oversee discipleship resources for all ages. So we also oversee the youth ministry and we oversee, oversee children's ministry. So several times already, we've done a whole effort, you know, uh, resource, and we've had multiple layers to it. And part of the reason for that, friends, is because discipleships can be most effective together. It is always most effective together. And I really wanted to equip pastors and leaders and parents, you know, um, to be able to, to disciple everybody at once so that it's not segmented and siloed out. Plus, in my own home, I've got two kids that perfectly align with <laughs> these ages. So, um, got a preteen, and eventually we'll work our way through the student edition, and then, of course, uh, my daughter. And I must say, it was also a ton of fun because they helped me with the picture book. I had the most fun writing the picture book. And if you want cliff notes, just read the picture book, okay? <laughs> just, yeah. That might be the bestseller among adults, too. It's all, it's all there. It's pretty much all there. So, um, and they, they actually helped me pick the illustrator and everything, gave me feedback as writing it. So it was just this really fun family adventure. Um, the picture book is called God's Beloved Community. And as I mentioned, Beloved Community is, I would say, Martin Luther King's ultimate dream that he didn't have enough time really to fill out. But Beloved Community, I want folks to understand, is rooted in God. King was a pastor first. And so in this, in this story, there's a little girl in school at, at, um, around Martin Luther King Day. And she's learning, you know, oh yeah, he was for justice and he did civil rights. And then you turn the page and it's like, but then she went to church and learned that Pastor King grounded everything he did in the love of God, right? And it goes on, it goes on from there. 
Love that. Love that. <laughs> yeah. So you, you, you mentioned just a little bit that Newcom has had some influence um, yes. in your journey too. So could yes. you say a little bit more? Yes. Okay. Um, so the past few years I have not been doing all of this processing sort of just individually or solo. There's been a lot of processing I've done in this community right here. Um, we've been coming here almost the entire time. We've been in the Chicago area, seven-ish years. And wow, um, the, the discipleship that happens in this church around race over that time at least was phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. From the very beginning, Mickey and I have been so impressed by the holistic approach to reconciliation. God is reconciling all things to himself on every level. And that's something we talk about here at Newcom. And we have had a beautiful focus on racial reconciliation as well. But the balance has been gorgeous. Reconciliation this way, we need Jesus, people. <laughs> okay? And reconciliation with one another. And I've heard that here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And at some point to our um, mission statement, the phrase reconciled to reconcile or reconciled reconcilers got added. And I was like, that's it. That's it. That's, that's a beautiful statement of what we're called to in our discipleship. We've been reconciled to reconcile. And so over the course of time, the teaching here, um, the many opportunities, the, even the phrase itself of our mission has deeply impacted me and also appears in the book. <laughs> okay, and then how about for the denomination impacting you as well? So you may or may not be that familiar with the Evangelical Covenant Church, denomination of which we are a part. It's about 900 churches throughout North America, and one of the things that we are famous for, we are really known for, is pioneering work around racial reconciliation. And so that obviously has been a big impact on me too. When I started, I didn't have that, that kind of depth, but... Over time, many, many of my colleagues have spoken into my life. And so some of those folks um, you, may, you may already be familiar with through their works, uh, Dominique Gilliard, Soong Chan Ra, Ephraim Smith, David Swanson, pastor of Newcom Bronzeville, well-regarded thought leader in this area, uh, Daniel Hill, and of course, Michael. <laughs> so we, and that's just a short list. Um, there, there are many others, but... I'm grateful, and um, if you visit the denominational website, covchurch.org, there are just a ridiculous amount of resources to help us all with the journey of racial discipleship, so I'm grateful to be a part of this movement. It's awesome, yeah. I get asked a lot when I go out and speak, you know, what denomination is sort of getting it, and I, of course, I always say our denomination, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So, we stumble and fall here a lot. But as you've mentioned, it, it is our intent, it is our hope, it is our goal to, to be holistically reconciling. Um, so what would you say for churches like ours and others that are already trying to be on the journey? Any advice? Yeah, so as you can imagine, um, there's kind of, if I simplify it, two audiences for this work. You know, one is for folks who sort of know that there's something that they should do but aren't quite on the journey yet. So that's one. And then the other is folks who are on the journey, right? And I would say generally this is that kind of community. You know, we're not just getting started here. But for, for folks like us, here is what I would want to encourage. Um, 
Jesus first and Jesus the center. Jesus first, Jesus the center. It is becoming increasingly popular to do justice without Jesus. You don't need just, you know, you don't need Jesus to do justice. <laughs> There's a lot, of, a lot of that out there. And of course, of course, of course, of course, we could do many things as we partner uh, with, our brother, uh, with people all over who have different beliefs and faith backgrounds. There are some common denominator justice elements. But friends, <laughs> we are partnering with the God of the universe who has reconciled, is reconciling all things through Jesus. We have access to these incredible spiritual resources and we've got to make use of them, right? This journey of racial discipleship should be about partnering more closely with Jesus, getting to know his heart better, and hopefully introducing him to others. People who already like the, the concept of reconciliation, but don't know Jesus, my goodness, I would love for them to understand that ultimately this is going to happen. <laughs> this work of reconciliation will be complete. There is hope and there is power and encouragement even now to be found in Christ. So no the God of reconciliation, right, who is about this work. And so, um, so I encourage us, you know, let's do justice with Jesus and let's introduce the world to the God of justice and reconciliation. Great word, great word. <laughs> that is a truly important word. I, I see working with younger folks. They, I actually published a piece in Christianity Today magazine because I saw it so often and it says, it's titled, Goodbye Jesus, I've got justice on my mind. How many people I find are Christians, they come to justice and they just decide justice is more important than Jesus and they move on. So what you said there, thank you, that is just the heart of it. Amen. There is no justice without Jesus, right? It can't be. It's, that's where the power comes from. Oh, I want to say one more thing. Please. Part of that, I think, why people, even Christians, have started to disconnect justice and Jesus is because historically the church has engaged in some injustice, right? And we know that. We know too that the church as an institution has not been perfect in the area of race and justice has been lacking, um, especially in our country. And so there's been a backlash to that. But my encouragement, is, you know, that's not of God, right? When Jesus was, was with us, he, was, um, he had the harshest words for the religious people, for the religious leaders who were, who were oppressing the marginalized and not paying attention to matters of justice and righteousness. So this, this is similar to, to what Jesus experienced. Let's disentangle <laughs> um, evil acts that the church may have engaged in wrongly with our God, with Jesus Christ, who is all about the marginalized, who is all about loving us. Amen. So tell us how we can pray for you. So, Michael, <laughs> um, one of the things that we have talked about is this, this is a spiritual work, and the enemy loves to run circles around us with regard to racism, frankly, and it's it's wild, really, but many people who are engaged in this work 
have experienced all kinds of strange attacks, have um, experienced all kinds of personal discouragements, some that the world doesn't know about or others don't know about, but it, it tends to be a very painful road, really. Um, and so, you know, while I'm, of course, having a book launch party and, you know, all the fun things, reality is I also know I'm stepping into a kind of spiritual battle as I try to push back against the forces of darkness in the world and in the church. And so I would so appreciate prayer that um, the Lord would really keep me centered in him and his power, focused on him um, as, as I move forward. The other one I'm also getting from you. So recently, I was at a BBQ with Michael, and we asked him something. He was talking about how he's been at this work for so long, even some of his recent research um, has been showing that, oh man, we just haven't made as much progress as we could. And we were like, Michael, how do you keep going? How do you stay encouraged? And he quoted um, Mother Teresa, when Mother Teresa said, you know, God doesn't call us to be successful, but to be faithful. God doesn't call us to be successful, but to be faithful. And I thought, oh, yes. I'd heard that before, but I need that right this moment as I embark on this. It's not about being successful, friends, I would, but I would love for you to pray that I would be faithful to my God. All right. So before, I'm going to lead us in prayer, but before we do couple announcements. Do you want to make them? Yes, I have two invitations for you, Newcomb family. So the first is a little gift. And if you'd like it, you got to get your phone out. So if you would like a sneak preview of all three books, this is the, the entire first chapter of the adult edition and the student edition and multiple pages of the picture book. What you can do is text courage, the word courage, to 44144. Okay, just text COURAGE to 44144. And then the second invitation, as we said, is to the book launch party. It'll be here downstairs next Sunday, um, 7 to 8.30. There will be desserts and childcare will be provided. So everybody's invited. Would love, love, love to see you there. And I just got confirmation yesterday that uh, David Swanson from Bronzeville, our sister church, will be our special guest for that as well. So please come out for me. This is a new community thing. This project is really a new community project. So I'd love for you to come and celebrate with us. You can sign up on Newcom's website. Thank you. All right, well, let's, let's close in prayer all. And thank you so much for uh, being willing to listen. Thank you. Really appreciate it. All right, Lord, we've heard a good word. We've heard a challenging word. We thank you for the work you've done in, in Michelle's life. and. I think she spoke the truth. When you get involved in this kind of work, the devil comes directly into your face and attempts to get you to turn sideways. So we're praying, Lord, not, not just for a hedge of protection, but how about a brick wall of protection? Amen. That uh, you would not let her get steered off course as you called her to this work, that you would uh, help her to be having a powerful voice of linking this work with discipleship. It is at the root of being a Christian reconciling so lord we're so grateful for that and then as she shared with this this sense of uh needing to be perfect and yes. and that gets translated into i need to succeed yes. that as she spoke the good word no we are called to be faithful you will do the work yes. if we are faithful so lord
May we all be that, faithful to you, and then watch what you will do. In your holy and mighty name, amen. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs>